Hello, my name is Andrew Clapham. I teach in the Geneva Graduate Institute here in Geneva. This is a lecture about the meaning of war in international law. So in the past, major English language manuals on international law would be split into two volumes. Book one would cover peace and book war, sorry, book two would cover war. Here is uh, Westlake, so you can see that book one is peace and the second one is simply called war. And the idea was that you were either in peacetime or in wartime and depending on which you were, you would take down one or the other book from your bookshelf. And the logic was that in wartime, this was a rupture between states and the normal relations would not apply. The special regime for war would apply. Now today, we assume that international law applies generally, whether there's an armed conflict or we are in peacetime. And indeed, as you can tell, the very concept of talking about war is discouraged. I slipped into the language of armed conflict. Not only as a political matter does war seem to be an incongruous uh, phrase, international law having abolished war, but even in legal circles, people tend not to use the expression war. They prefer to use armed conflict. In fact, the International Law Commission, meeting here in Geneva at the moment, when it produced its draft articles, they called them the effects of armed conflicts on treaties. And they had a commentary which explains, and I will quote, it has become evident that under contemporary international law, the existence of an armed conflict does not, ipso facto, put an end to or suspend existing agreements, although a number of them may indeed lapse or be suspended on account of their nature. Commercial treaties, for instance. And then in the annex, the International Law Commission give an indicative list of the types of treaties that, because of their subject matter, continue in times of armed conflict. And I won't read out the whole list, but it includes human rights law, treaties on the law of armed conflict, IHL, treaties on international criminal justice, and of course, diplomatic and consular relations. So the assumption for many people is that war and armed conflict can be used as interchangeable terms, and it doesn't matter much because, in fact, international law and international relations continue, whether we have war, armed conflict, or peace. And today, one doesn't really expect to find war as such triggering special rights beyond the rights in the laws of war. And that as a contemporary matter of law, one shouldn't need to discuss whether something is a war or something else. However, my research uh, would suggest that this is not really the case. And in the course of this lecture, I want to show that in some contexts, there is actually a difference between an armed conflict and a formal state of war. Now, obviously, the word war appears in multiple treaties in international law. And what I will show is that the same word war depending on the context, can have a different meaning. So there isn't one international law meaning for war. It depends which treaty we're talking about and what that context is. And in fact, in contemporary international relations, the word war could be used to cover a civil war or a conflict with terrorists or an interstate armed conflict. But in some specific contexts, I think it does matter whether we are talking about what I will call a declared war or a state of war. And in order to be clear um, in the lecture, I will refer to that as war with a capital W. On the, on the page, it's easier to explain because you would see a capital W when I'm writing about this. But in the course of this lecture, if I mean this formal state of war, I'll try to remember to say war with a capital W. 
And what I think is that the word war, it obviously has a deep psychological hold on people in various contexts. Um, and it's used also to be against a war. So we have stop the war coalitions. And we might speak about uh, a coalition to stop rape being used as a weapon of war. These are, are rhetorical devices. And the word war there is doing the work of suggesting something which is horrific for the victims and something which needs to be stopped. On the other hand, politicians might refer to a war in order to give themselves extra powers within national law or even in their imagination, perhaps, in, in international law. And you hear about special war powers or the presidential war powers. Now, there are separate lectures about what are the rules that apply in times of armed conflict, and I'm not really going to be talking about that. And there are separate books or materials which explain the important work that war does as a concept in international law. Um, and in the references which you can find attached to this lecture series, you'll, you'll find the books by Kalmanovich and the reference of the chapter by Ian Scobie, as well as a full-length book edited by Mary Ellen O'Connor. Um, now, those books um, give you a sense as to some of the argumentation about whether something is an armed conflict or not, but they don't necessarily talk about what I'm going to talk about, which is the meaning of the word war in a rather technical sense in international law. So when is it that a formal state of war, war with a capital W, might be significant um, in international law? Well, I suppose I, I need to give some sort of definition of what I mean by a formal state of war. And I will um, give you my definition for the purposes of this lecture. And I would say a state of war, capital W, in international law means that a state has either declared war on another state or that the intention of one or more of the states means that a state of war is being asserted as a matter of international law. So, for example, according to that definition, if Al-Qaeda declares war on the world or on the United States, that is not a war in the way that I'm describing it. There could be an armed conflict and the laws of war might apply, but as I hope I will be able to explain, it is not war in the technical sense. So let me give you some very concrete examples where a treaty references the word war, and this means a declared war in the formal sense. So the first example is fairly well known, but I will uh, explain it anyway. The four Geneva Conventions of 1949, together with their first and third additional protocols, apply to all cases of declared war, in addition to them applying to armed conflict. And a number of other treaties are dependent on that definition, and so those too would be triggered by a declared war. So what you would need is a declared war, meaning a formal unilateral declaration of war issued by the appropriate authority of a state declaring war on another state. Now, there's no particular form that this declaration need take, but I have to say that today a judge will not necessarily assume that a political statement by a leader, even referencing war, is a formal declaration of war. Now, this could have some legal significance because if it was a question of reparations being awarded by a court for a violation, say, of the Geneva Conventions, this could apply not necessarily only from the time that the fighting started, but from the time that there was a declaration of war. 
and there could indeed be violations um, without actual fighting of those texts. Um, now, this issue of whether or not statements by a political body count as a declaration of war for the purposes of the Geneva Conventions has actually arisen fairly recently in the Ethiopia-Eritrea Claims Commission. And the Commission had to determine whether on a particular date the Geneva Conventions applied due to a claimed declaration of war. In the end, they rejected Eritrea's argument that a resolution of the Ethiopian Council of Ministers and Parliament condemning the Eritrean invasion of the day before could be taken as a declaration of war. Even though that resolution at the political level made it clear that Ethiopia was going to act in self-defense through force, the Arbitration Commission stated that the essence of a declaration of war is, quotes, an explicit affirmation of a state of war between belligerents. And they held that in this case there was not a state of war. And then I could give you other examples of where an arbitrator or a judge has held there is no state of war. The, the assumption is with the UN Charter outlawing the use of force, states are not likely going to make a declaration of war. And many people would think there hasn't been such a declaration of war since 1945 with the Russian declaration of war on, on Japan. So there's a second set of treaties, which I think are quite important in this respect, where war is mentioned and where many people have interpreted that to mean you need a declaration of war. And these are human rights treaties on the abolition of the death penalty. So these treaties abolish the use of the death penalty for the state's parties, quotes, in respect of acts committed, sorry, except in respect of acts committed in time of war or in imminent threat of war. Now, you can see from a human rights perspective, the narrower the definition of war is there, the more likely it is that the human right to life is going to be respected. So this really is a life and death issue. If states are entitled to execute people in time of war, we need to know what that means because, it, as I say, for the person complaining that their human rights are violated, it's going to mean either they can be executed or they can't. And here it seems that the word war refers to a formal state of war. Um, the late Professor Sir Nigel Rodley noted with regards to the Sixth Protocol to the European Convention, he says, the formula refers to war rather than armed conflict. For him, war is a legal status normally declared by at least one of the parties. And we find the same expression again in the second optional protocol to the Civil and Political Rights Covenant. It allows for reservations providing quotes, for the application of the death penalty in time of war pursuant to a conviction for the most serious crime of a military nature committed during wartime. And there's another treaty, the Inter-American Protocol for the Abolition of the Death Penalty, again explaining that one has to notify the depository for the beginning and the end of, quotes, a state of war. Now, if one looks into the drafting of these treaties, what was happening is that the drafters wanted as many states as possible to abolish the death penalty and join these treaties, but they knew that in the national law, or in some cases in the constitution of those states, the death penalty could be applied in wartime. And so states wanted to join and say, we're not going to use the death penalty, but they knew they wouldn't be able to easily change their constitution. So they said, let's write a treaty abolishing the death penalty but we're going to have to have a clause that says, except in wartime. And if you look at the reservations and the statements by particularly Latin American states, you will see that, for example, the reservation formulated by El Salvador 
references its constitution, which refers to the use of the death penalty prescribed by military law during a state of international war, in Spanish, and excuse my Spanish, durante el estado de guerra internacional. And the Brazilian constitution similarly states, there shall be no punishment of death, save in case of declared war. So I think you can see that in those cases, we're talking not about any old armed conflict, but particularly a war declared in the formal international sense of war with a capital W. And that's the exception to the rule of the abolition of the death penalty. So those are two examples, the Geneva Conventions and Human Rights Treaties abolishing the death penalty, where we need a war in the very formal sense. But there can be other treaties, other situations, where the word war is used in the treaty, and it's not in such a refined, narrow sense as a declared war. Now, the issue has arisen recently, again here in Geneva, in a WTO dispute between Russia and Ukraine. And in this dispute, the panel concluded interpreting a WTO treaty, the use of the conjunction or with the adjective other in war or other emergency in international relations indicates that war is one example of the larger category of emergency in international relations. For them, and they go on, war refers to armed conflict. Armed conflict may occur between states, international armed conflict, or between governmental forces and a private armed group, or between such groups within the same state, non-international armed conflict. So in that particular context of a WTO dispute, which allows for certain exceptions in time of war, they read war much more generally as meaning armed conflict. Now let me give a fourth example of a treaty using the word war, where war has a, a much more restricted meaning and, and a rather different meaning to the ones I've been describing so far. So the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights states, any propaganda for war shall be prohibited by law. Now, one might assume here that the word war is to be interpreted widely, covering all sorts of large-scale armed conflicts. But if you think about it, such an interpretation would mean that states parties were expected to prohibit support for the UN Security Council, which has authorized the use of force against a member state which is threatening international peace and security, so that you wouldn't be able to encourage the UN to use force in its armed conflict. That doesn't seem to make sense in a UN treaty. And in fact, the UN Human Rights Committee has opined that this prohibition on propaganda for war only covers propaganda for, quotes, an act of aggression or breach of the peace contrary to the Charter of the United Nations. So here, war means not just any old armed conflict, but an armed conflict in violation of the Charter. And therefore, the Civil and Political Rights Covenant does not prohibit advocacy of the sovereign right of self-defense. So propaganda for your own armed forces in a war of self-defense where you're the defending side is not a violation of that human rights treaty. Whereas if you're arguing for the aggressive side, it is propaganda for war. So here war has a very loaded meaning. It means an aggressive war by the aggressor side. When you're in defense, you're not, according to this, engaged in propaganda for war, but propaganda for self-defense. Um, and similarly, a war of national liberation would not apparently be prohibited by this provision. in which So war is construed uh, very narrowly. Um, another area that is undergoing, I would say, some flux at the moment are the ideas of prosecuting the crime of aggression. So the statute for the Tokyo Tribunal at the end of the Second World War was clear that crimes against peace would be defined as, and I quote, 
planning, preparation, initiation or waging of a declared or undeclared war of aggression or a war in violation of international law. So waging such an undeclared war is a crime. Now, does that mean that engaging in all forms of illegal use of force could also be the crime of aggression? During the negotiations to amend the Rome Statute and define the crime of aggression, some states wanted to refine the crime of aggression to wars of aggression, large-scale use of force where the intention was to seize territory. And others said, well, no, that's not necessarily the limits of the crime of aggression. Let's have it wider. But there was still a sense that aggression is linked back in some way to the idea of, of war and wars of aggression. And the compromise was that the crime of aggression in the Rome Statute is now defined as an act of aggression which by its character, gravity and scale constitutes a manifest violation of the Charter of the United Nations. So it's something more than the minimal use of force, but it doesn't have to be a full-scale war as commonly understood. Now probably many people when they're interpreting the crime of aggression will still have at the back of their mind that a manifest violation of the Charter by its scale and gravity looks a bit like what we understand to be a war. So this, this notion is still doing some work in the background, but you won't find the word war in the new definition of aggression despite the efforts of some people to put it in. Um, there are several other treaties that I could mention um, I won't have time to go through them all, but one which has been in the news recently is the Montreux Treaty on the Straits of 1936, um, and that relates to access to the Black Sea and, in particular, some of Turkey's rights and obligations in that context. Um, and that treaty includes um, expressions related to um, the word war, but it would be a bit too technical to get into now how ter uh, Turkey has um, interpreted that. And there is some ambiguity these days as to whether the law of blockade, the law of contraband, the law of seizing prize on the high seas is only triggered by an actual declared war or rather a large-scale armed conflict. Again, um, to get into the detail of that would take us too far away from our subject, but I will mention it because some states are quite clear that blockade implies war in the formal sense while other states are quite clear that it doesn't need to be a formal war. Um, now this is obviously complex because some of this depends on how states trigger rules in national law. So for example, some states would say we will only accept that states can seize prize on the high seas in times of armed conflict and bring it back to prize court for condemnation if there has been a declaration of war and the jurisdiction of prize courts has been triggered by that declaration of war. Whereas other states might feel in the 21st century that wars are no longer declared and they want to use prize courts in any event. But it will make a huge difference at national law because the prize court judge will not sit unless there has been a declaration of war. And here we have an interesting interaction between what war means for international lawyers and what war means at the national level for national lawyers. And often you will find that in national laws there will be references to war as defined by international law. So we have a, a, a sort of mixture here, a dialectic between the international and the national. And of course it's impossible for me to explain what happens in every single national legal order, 
but they will be references to a state of war, a declaration of war, or war as understood in international law. An obvious example is many states have rules that say you cannot go abroad to fight in a foreign war. That will be a crime under national law. Now, going abroad to fight with terrorists, is that covered by that rule? Or does it have to be the sort of international law, which, sorry, international war that involves two states? Or does it need a declaration of war? Every state has a slightly different uh, position on that. Lots of states in their national constitution will have references to the state not being involved in an aggressive war, not participating in war. And this comes up regularly in the 21st century, and in fact it came up quite recently before the Irish courts, where the judge had to work out whether Ireland, by allowing American bombers to land in Ireland to refuel, whether Ireland was participating in war. And the attitude of the judge is quite interesting, I think, for the purposes of this lecture. And what he said was, what is remarkable is that notwithstanding all the argument, no party was in a position to refer to any accepted legal definition of what is meant by war in national or international law. And he decided he wasn't going to offer a definition of war either for Irish law or for international law because he felt that what Ireland was doing was not participation and therefore he didn't have to decide what is a war. But national judges are faced with this dilemma and sooner or later we will have a, quite a rich case law, I think, as to what they consider participation in war really means as a matter of constitutional law. A second area where the international definition of war overlaps with what happens at the national level is the crime of treason. So this obviously relates to betrayal of your country. And the question is, what does that need? Does it need a formal state of war or is it enough that the state is involved in an armed conflict? And because the laws of treason are several hundred years old in many cases, they do relate to this more formal idea of a declaration of war. And so several of the definitions of treason that I've looked at will have two separate offences contained within the overall crime of treason. The first offence, I will simplify, is called levying war. And the second offence is called aiding the enemy. Now, things get a bit complicated here because the idea of levying war has actually been interpreted to mean insurrection against your own government. So a riot within your own state, which you have instigated, is how a national judge will often interpret the crime of treason, of levying war. Nothing to do with interstate war as understood by international lawyers. On, and I will just quote how the UK um, Law Commission define this. They say, war here is not limited to true war of international law, but will include any foreseeable disturbance that is produced by a considerable number of persons and is directed at some purpose which is not private, but general. For example, to release the prisoners in all the jails. So the storming of the Bastille, if you like, to mix the countries, is that kind of levying of war, of insurrection, that would be considered the crime of treason in some jurisdictions. On the other hand, the second offence of aiding the enemy is often read by national judges to be limited to situations of war with a capital W, i.e. a declared war as understood in international law. And this is quite an ancient idea. When uh, 
Vatel, a Swiss jurist, um, was writing his Droit des gens, or Law of Nations, it's sometimes translated as. In his first edition, um, if, you look, if you look at the original typeface, you will see that he uses a capital E for enemies of the state, meaning enemies in another state, and a small e when he's talking about a personal enemy or somebody you have a dispute with. Um, and this is uh, a quote from Vatel um, in English translated by me. When the ruler of a state, the sovereign, declares war with a capital W on another sovereign, we understand that the nation has declared war on another nation. The two nations are then enemies, and all the subjects of one are thence the enemies of all the subjects of the other. This practice conforms with the principles. So this is the very old-fashioned idea that war between two states creates enemies with a capital E, capital W, war. And that old idea of international enemies in wartime from the law of nations will have knock-on effects. Not only could you be prosecuted for aiding the enemy in time of war, the crime of treason, but there are multiple other crimes, in certainly in Anglo-American law, trading with the enemy, assisting the enemy, being an enemy alien and not having access to the courts, uh, being detained as an enemy alien and interned. All of those ideas of enemy will often relate to formal war as understood in international law. And again, the UK Law Commission says the meaning of enemies here is to be taken in the strict sense which international law gives the word and depends on the existence of a state of war. So let me end with a few thoughts on war in international law by way of a conclusion and what I would call maybe four tropes which I hope I've dispelled. So trope number one would be that declarations of war are no longer relevant as a matter of law and it's enough that there's an armed conflict. And in fact, I hope I've shown that this could make a difference whether you have a declaration of war or just any old armed conflict. It could make a difference for the death penalty under human rights treaties and it could make a difference for questions of whether you are an enemy alien or whether or not you can be prosecuted for the crime of treason. There are other examples you would get extra punishment under military discipline and so on. Conclusion number two or trope number two is that sometimes people say in war, however it's defined, the normal treaties do not apply and there's a license to kill people, to destroy things, spoil the environment and seize things belonging to the enemy. And in fact, I hope I've shown that the normal rules of international law continue and they are in fact supplemented by additional laws that apply in times of armed conflict. Trope number three is that it's often said a state is entitled to retaliate in wartime by breaching the rules, otherwise known as countermeasures or reprisals. Now, this might be sort of generally so, but in fact, in wartime and in times of armed conflict, there are some, some very specific uh, prohibitions on the reprisals that you can take. For example, if mis prisoners of war are mistreated by one side, you cannot mistreat the prisoners that you hold on the other side. That's explicit, explicitly stated um, in the Geneva Conventions. It's also explicitly stated by the International Law Commission in the Rules on State Responsibility. And there are further references on the law of treaties, which explain that in times of armed conflict, reprisals against protected persons are completely prohibited. So there, there's a special regime that countermeasures cannot apply to those people. And lastly, it's often said that the ancient international law of war entitles states to capture things and annex territory. 
Now that's not true at all. It may have been true once, but it no, makes no sense if you think about it for international law to outlaw the use of force and then at the same time that international law would recognize that you could gain territory by engaging in the use of force or that you could capture things as the booty and spoils of war. Um, this has been stated by the International Court of Justice. It's been stated by the General Assembly in the Friendly Relations Declaration. And I will just read that paragraph where the General Assembly stated, the territory of state shall not be the object of acquisition by another state resulting from the threat or use of force. No territorial acquisition resulting from the threat or use of force shall be recognized as legal. So finally, let me just say that next time somebody claims to you that they can do something because there's a war on or that all is fair in love and war, you might want to question what they're really saying and whether or not there really is a legal right to do that. They may be invoking some international legal meaning of war, but I hope after this lecture you've realized that there is no such thing. It depends entirely on the context in which the word war is being used. Thank you very much.